you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. What a blessing it is to be a child of God. No matter what goes on in this world, we can think and ought to think what a blessing it is to be a child of God. To have forgiveness of sins. To realize that heaven is our home. To be able to have peace and joy in a world that's full of strife and sorrow. What a blessing it is to be a Christian. And how important it is for the people of God to ever keep that perspective. In this world you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but rejoice, I have overcome the world. John 16 and verse 33. But we have to be honest. When a person is a Christian, it's as if there is a target that's placed on our hearts by the devil. You know, the old song, Amazing Grace, puts it this way. Even though it's emphasizing God's great blessing in making salvation possible, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. I think all of us can say amen to that. And there's dangers, toils, and snares that await if we live very long in this world, aren't there? The devil won't leave Christians alone because he realizes Christians belong to Christ. He goes about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. What I'd like to do this morning is invite you to place your attention on 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. And what we'll be looking at are sins that Satan uses to sink a Christian's soul. Sins Satan uses to sink a Christian's soul. And while these are particular sins that everyone has to wrestle with, I think that Paul is mentioning these through the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy chapter 6, because they are particularly ways that the devil will work in the lives of Christians to bring us down and cause us to lose our souls. There are spiritual landmines out there that we all need to be aware of and pay special attention that we don't find ourselves stepping on those. 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1 and verse 10. I believe that five sins are mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, that we as Christians really need to think about in our own lives. Because there are areas in which Satan will try to get in to our hearts. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, first of all. Here is a sin that we may well have to wrestle with. A too casual view of Scripture. A too casual view of Scripture. The idea of teaching a different doctrine, you'll see in verse 3. And does not consent or does not agree with the sound doctrine. You'll see that also in this section of Scripture. The word casual should not be associated with the word scripture. And yet, many Christians can have a too casual view of scripture. More as we investigate this passage. Look at verse 1 and verse 3. In speaking of God's will, in speaking of Scripture, verses 1 and 3 speak of instruction, doctrine. We must be interested in God's instruction, in God's doctrine. Look at verse 3 and it mentions sound or healthy teaching. God's instruction or teaching as opposed to that of man and healthy teaching as opposed to what is sick and unhealthy. More about that momentarily. But keep looking at God's word here. When you look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 5, God's word is referred to as the truth. Do you see that? There are a number of interchangeable expressions. As opposed to lies or having a spin on things, God's word is the truth. Continue looking at this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, among three or four different passages in 1 Timothy 6 alone... God's word, Troy, is likened to the faith. It's called the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. It is referred to as a trust. A trust committed to our care. God's word has been committed to our care. And maybe we ought to ask ourselves... How do we handle God's Word? Ron, that's not a bad question. Do I handle it with care as a sacred trust 
1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Well, we look at all of these things and the idea is made over and over that there must be a deep and abiding love and respect for God's Word and we need to be careful not to be casual in our treatment of Scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, God put His Word in writing. God put His Word in writing. He got it in writing for us. We have it in writing. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. Psalm 119 and verse 97. Is it? I find it a lot easier sometimes to keep up with sports than to keep up with my intake of God's Word, the sports news, rather than God's will. I wonder over the last week or so how many of us have invested more time looking at elections and election results than in what's eternal. Just, it's just something to think about because the devil uses this type of circumstance to help create a casual, a lack of love and respect toward his word. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Isaiah puts it right here, and it's so important to appreciate it. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. The one that God regards, the one that God will think highly of, and I want to be a person that God regards even though he knows me, in all of my flaws, in my sin. This person is a person who is humble and who exhibits a contrite spirit and who trembles at his word. If the psalmist in Psalm 119, who didn't have the benefit of all the Bible, said, oh, how I love your word, how much more should we as Christians love God's word? We've got the other side of things. We've got Jesus coming in the New Testament. If Isaiah could speak about the one God regards being a person who's humble and who has a contrite spirit and who trembles at his word, if that was true at that particular juncture in time and history, how much more true should it be now that we have the entire revelation of God's will in Jesus Now, it's easy on this point, and I'm aware of this, for somebody to say, I do respect Scripture. I do believe in its inspiration. And I'm glad that you do. But practically speaking, how does that pan out in your everyday life? Because I think it's probably one of the slickest ploys of Satan to have us believe the truth about the nature of God's Word, that it's inspired and authoritative, and yet not to approach it with the speak, Lord, your servant hears attitude. 1 Samuel 3, 9-11. 
Adam, it's easy for those of us who preach to get so busy that we just hastily put together something for a sermon and we fail to feed our souls and we really may not feed the souls of others when we preach and teach. So what I'm saying is, yes, your view of the nature of Scripture is really important, but you can believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible and believe that with all your heart, Miss Darby, and not get into the Word and let the Word get into you. Colossians 3.16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Don't waste an election year. Don't waste a pandemic. Don't waste a down economy. In all of that, turn to God for His wisdom and for His strength in His will. That's so crucial. And the devil will use this kind of thing as a temptation for us to get away from the Lord we love. Now, before Sheree and I got married years back... We wrote each other a number of times because at that particular time she lived in the Dallas area and I lived in the Memphis, Tennessee area. The other day I was going through a box of letters that she had written me from 38 years ago or longer. God has given me something even more precious than those letters that Cherie wrote me so long ago. How do I regard that? Am I into his word to hear what he has to say to save my soul and to see me through life next? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And the word, the sin, I'd like for you to notice secondly, is pride. Pride. And the terminology is this. A person who is proud is described as conceited and they know nothing They are pompous ignoramuses. They are arrogant windbags. And I got to tell you, the terminology is strong here because the offense is great. The offense is strong. It's been well said over the years that sin has the letter I smack dab in the middle and so does pride. Pride is the worst form of eye trouble. And makes us conceited, pompous ignoramuses because we place ourselves in a place that rightly belongs only to God. Wow. Pride and arrogancy do I hate, Proverbs 8, verse 13 says. Pride goes before a fall, Proverbs 16 and verse 18. A 
proud look God hates. Proverbs 6, 16, and 17. Pride. The pride of life, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, is a way that the devil has tempted man through the years, and he especially is good at doing this with those of us who are Christians. And sometimes we can clothe our pride in religious jargon, in biblical jargon, or, or even in pious, faithful, sound approaches. But if the emphasis still is I, are we, am I, frequently the subject of my religious conversations? Do we, do I, frequently build myself up as though I am a cut above someone else? As a Christian, pride. It can be painful, Waylon, because it is a temptation that we all can, can gravitate toward, you know, but, and we, we lose sight of humility and we point about what we do. And again, think about this. The Lord knows we have jobs and lives and that. Every moment of every day, we might not be completely focused on Scripture. But it's still in our heart and mind. And there's a place for self-image, but if we're not careful, self-image can quickly degenerate into to personal pride. And that's sin. Isn't that true? And so see what the devil is such a master manipulator at doing. He takes things that may be somewhat innocent in a sense, maybe even good like a healthy self-image. And out of that, he wants to foster sinful pride. Here's an interesting one. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, especially verses 4 and 5. Having dealt with a casual attitude towards Scripture, i got to tell you, after preparing for this sermon, what went through my mind is I want to invest more of my time intentionally getting into God's Word for no other reason than to feed my soul and to help people get home. And as I thought about the subject of pride, and preachers are certainly as tempted toward this, if not more so, than, than the people in the pew. Will my emphasis be on lifting up Jesus or myself? Now look at verses 4 and 5. Here's a temptation that the devil will use in the lives of Christians. An unhealthy interest in controversy and quarreling. And Tim, you'd looked up at me just then, and you read the New American Standard most of the time. I love the way the New American Standard puts this. A morbid interest. 
They may think that they're healthy, but they're sick. They're sick because all they're interested in is controversy and word wars. Now, isn't there a time to stand for the truth and to contend for the faith? Jude 3, Philippians 1, 16 and 17. To be set for the defense of the gospel? Absolutely. But the devil will take that if we are not careful and we will become guilty of sin. Because we will have developed an unhealthy interest in controversy and in word wars. We become word warriors. We'll put it this way. We are willing to fight about something at the drop of a hat. While it is extremely important... To uphold the purity of the church. James 1, 27. Visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unspotted from the world. And to want the church to be holy. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. May I suggest that there are some in the church who are absolutely preoccupied with nothing more than controversy and with quarreling. And they have a pathological pursuit of what is profitless. A pathological pursuit of what is profitless, according to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Stand for the truth. Uphold what is healthy. But do not have a sick and morbid interest simply in controversy and in word wars. For years, there has been a segment of the brotherhood that in my judgment, that seems to be what they emphasize. It is as important for people in the world to know what we as members of churches of Christ are for as it's imperative for them to know what we're against. And here's what happens. Notice the results. Notice the results here because five resulting sins all come out. They're brought to fruit, to fruition, because of this unhealthy interest in controversy and fighting with each other. Number one, envy. Do you see that in the text? We become envious of someone else's talent or blessings. It was for envy Jesus was delivered up. Matthew 27, 18. And envy has caused an awful lot of heartache in the body of Christ. Number two, strife. Do you see that? This idea of having an unhealthy preoccupation with controversy and with word wars leads to strife. It leads to competition, to contention, to conflict. Number three, 
We need to beware of that. Number three, look at the text yet again. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and see what it says. He has the expression in the English standard, slander, abusive speech. Sometimes we ought to ask ourselves, even when there is false teaching that's being dealt with and strong responses have to be made, am I dealing with the matter or have I allowed things to get really personal? Abusive speech. The term literally is blasphemies. To speak against another. God doesn't take it very well when he is blasphemed. And I suspect he doesn't appreciate it when someone he made in his image is verbally abused by one who wears the name of Christ. Look at this again, number four. Evil suspicions. Evil suspicions. This idea of always wanting to pursue the controversial. Yes, teach the truth. Teach the necessity of the Lord's church, the necessity of baptism, who Jesus Christ is, and deal with error. But people also need to hear about the grace of God, the love of God, the peace of God, and joy in God. We need a well-balanced diet for our souls. Evil suspicions. Questioning people's motives. You ever been around some brethren and you knew that they were trying to figure out where you stood on every particular? Troy, you ever been around them? To make sure you were okay? And while I realize not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, do we need to be guilty of evil suspicion and question everyone? <clears throat> Lastly, and this is interesting, constant friction. When you look at what Paul has addressed so far, a casual attitude toward God's word, pride, and then an unhealthy interest in what is controversial and in fighting about words. Doesn't that sound exactly like the world? Those of us who have tuned into the news at all over the last week or so? And shouldn't God expect something higher and nobler and better of us? Again, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, especially verses uh, 5 through 10. The last part of verse 5 going on through verse 10. The fourth sin that could sink our soul is greed or love of money. I know a number of people in this congregation have had to take pay cuts. It can be hard getting adjusted. Do 
the times will always require us to ask ourselves some questions about money. Money is a mighty good tool, but a mighty bad master. When I think of the problems in the early church, remember Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira? Wasn't greed and pride behind what they did? Acts 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira having a piece of property, acting as if they sold the, sold the property and gave all the proceeds to God. It was a money and pride thing. How about Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 20? He wants to buy the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit because he thinks that that's what money does. And he shows no understanding of, of spiritual things. Greed. Paul would say that there are those who make merchandise of the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 2.17. While those of us who preach should be profoundly grateful for the support of God's people, we do not preach simply to be supported by you. Those are the type of things that we have to think about and wrestle with as we look at this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In Acts 20 and verse 33, Paul said, I coveted no man's gold or silver. What a perspective. Here was a person who could not be legitimately accused of greed. Now notice what this passage says about getting too attached to money. Look at the passage. Notice verse 6. Verse 5 and 6. We'll look at four or five matters that Paul brings out because he understands the, the idea of finances and struggling at times and the desire for more. And Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10 puts it this way. He that loves money will not be satisfied with what he has. It'll never be enough. Just a little more. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Problem number one. Loving money comes at the expense, no pun intended. Loving money comes at the expense of what is greater gain. Godliness with contentment. The whole book of 1 Timothy is a book that we could call a church manual on pleasing God and living godly lives. 
you'll see the word godliness repeated here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. At least four times in 1 Timothy 4 verses 7 and 8. Exercise yourself to godliness. Pray that we can live godly and peaceful lives here. 1 Timothy 2, 2. Jesus comes and great is the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. To Paul, it's always about character, godly character, godliness. And when we love money and it starts to, to eat on us, it comes at the expense of real gain, godliness. Next verse. The love of money emphasizes the here and now to the neglect of the hereafter. Look again at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7 with me. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. A love of money emphasizes the here and now to the neglect of the hereafter. Look at the next verse. A love of money fails to appreciate the simplicity of life. Having food and clothing. And the idea is this, Brother Terry, whether we're talking about our clothes or a roof over our head, shelter, Emphasizing simplicity in life is preferred because with money comes more complexity, doesn't it? What to do with it, how to utilize it, and the like. And that can get in the way of our relationship with God. Remember the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22? He went away from the Lord sorrowfully. How about the rich man God called a fool? In Luke 12, 13 through 21. Again. When we look at the word of God, it says in verse 9... And ten, the love of money will produce all kinds of snares or traps. And finally, from the same verses, verses 9 and 10, it says the love of money may well destroy our soul. The devil can use these things pretty well in our lives, can he? And then notice finally, number five, verses six and eight. Discontent. Discontent. Godliness, here's divine mathematics. Godliness 
plus contentment is great gain. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. See in verses 6 and 8, that idea expressed, but also think of the opposite. Ungodliness and discontent equal great loss. Great loss. Paul himself would write elsewhere, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. Here's the idea. Hear me, Justin, here's the idea. My sufficiency is not found in money. My sufficiency is not found in my reputation and my pride. My sufficiency is not found in stuff. My sufficiency is found in my Lord. Because when a person really sees what we have in Jesus, everything else pales. It's so small in comparison. Discontent makes us sound a lot like the Israelites of old for whom Jesus, God, had brought them out of slavery, clothed and fed them, and their shoes didn't even wear out. How about that? Are you a latter-day Israelite as far as discontent? You know, Terry and, and Lynn, our elders, do they hate to see you coming because they know when you come you're going to be unhappy about something? Is that really how you want to be thought of as a Christian? And you know, there may be times that we want or need to go to Terry or Lynn as shepherds with a complaint but let's make sure that we go with, a, a, with encouragement a whole lot more than we go with complaint. Amen. Amen. Discontent. I know this, that when I die, I do not want people to think about me as being a person who was never happy with what God had done in their life and was never happy with how they had been treated by others and was never happy. That sounds so unlike Paul, but even more it sounds unlike Christ. We bring it home, we conclude... I remember hearing many years ago this expression, and it's come to mean a lot to me. Stay close and stay clean. Stay close and stay clean. Stay close to the Lord. You'll never regret that. Stay clean in your heart and mind. You'll never regret that either. The two go together. 
And my prayer for each Christian here at Westside and for all that will hear my voice is this. That each one of us will stay close to the Lord and that we will stay clean in our heart and mind. That's really what he desires and he will help us each step of the way. Thank you for listening. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. And it may be that there's a Christian here this morning that realizes that maybe one or more of these sins has just started to overwhelm you. It may be something you can just take to God yourself and you and God can take care of things. But it may be something that's obvious to too many others. And therefore you might want to acknowledge your sin. We would be humbled. Our hearts would be made contrite. And we would be trembling at the word of our God to be able to pray with you and for you. Because we deal with temptations and struggles too. And if you're not a Christian, you lack the contentment that can be found in Jesus. The peace and salvation to be found in Him. You are still in your sins. Please, oh please, do not try to quarrel and make an, a controversy out of something that is plainly said in Scripture. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sin, calling on the name of the Lord. If you've not done this, you need to, to be added to the precious body of Christ. Let us stand and sing.